Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast. Today for episode 253, Samson Mao, the CSO of Blockstream, rejoins me on the show and we talk about a range of things. They have a new hardware wallet called Blockstream Jade. So I wanted to talk about that as well as updates on their Liquid platform and what's going on there, as well as Blockstream mining and just Bitcoin mining in general. This show brought to you by swanbitcoin.com, the service by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. It's really easy and fast to sign up. They have really cheap fees. It's really, the focus is on education. So you want to make sure you send your friends and family there to swanbitcoin.com. You can create a recurring purchase plan or you can make one-time buys. They offer bank wires for larger amounts or ACH transfers for smaller one-time buys. They're available in all states and territories of the US and I believe they're the best place to send your friends and family when they are ready to start buying Bitcoin. Send them to swanbitcoin.com slash levera and swan will drop $10 of free Bitcoin in their account when they become a member. Unchained Capital are providing Bitcoin native financial services and multi-signature vaults. So if you are seeing the price of Bitcoin rise and you are now starting to think more about your security, well, why don't you think about a multi-sig vault with Unchained? You can buy two hardware wallets and go and set it up for free on their website, on their platform. Or on the other hand, if you need the white glove treatment and you need some assistance, they offer a concierge service. So they will ship you some hardware wallets, they'll answer your questions, they'll do the calls with you and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault. Now, normally that's $1,500, but you get $50 off for using the code Levera. Unchained Capital are great for also those of you interested in setting up a business account. They've got a range of business features there. They host a lot of informative and educational content as well. So you can go and check that out at unchained-capital.com. Compass is an online marketplace which makes it easier for everyone to mine Bitcoin and enhance the Bitcoin network's security. The anti-cloud mining option, Compass helps you buy your own ASIC and secure hosting at great facilities around the world. For years, we have all heard that mining is only profitable if you're investing tons of money. But now, with Compass... Everyone is able to tap into economies of scale and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. And if you're unsure about how to get started with mining Bitcoin, Compass offers hardware and hosting bundles which eliminates the need for advanced technical knowledge and allows you to quickly get started mining Bitcoin with hardware you own. Visit them at minewithcompass.com and start mining Bitcoin today. On to the show. Samson, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Stefan. It's great to be back. So, Samson, it's been a while since we've spoken and there's been a lot of stuff going on with Blockstream and Bitcoin as an industry. Um, So, uh, I guess let's just uh, hear from you a little bit. What's uh, kind of the latest with Blockstream and with what you're doing in the the Bitcoin world? Um, Lots of stuff. Uh, We've been busy building out uh, more liquid network usage and adoption, uh, getting more people onboarded, getting more exchanges onboarded. Um, as you know, we've launched Jade, a new new hardware wallet from Blockstream. Uh, we continue our mining expansion. You know, just uh, just the usual. Yeah, that's so much. There's so much going on, and obviously, it's kind of crazy. So, just for listeners, this we are recording 17th of February, Wednesday, and uh, so just last night we kind of touched over 50,000 as well. So there was a lot of excitement over that, also. Um, but uh, certainly, a lot more newbie people coming into the space, and they're looking for ways to learn how to custody. So I'm actually quite excited about Blockstream Jade. So maybe we should chat a little bit about that. I've, I've ordered mine as well. I'm just waiting for it to arrive. Obviously, there's been a, with all the COVID stuff. There's been some you know delays in the shipping and stuff like that. Uh, I don't not on, not on the Blockstream side. I think it's on the um, 
postal side. But anyway, tell us a little bit about Blockstream Jade. Yeah, so Blockstream Jade is a hardware wallet that we released uh, maybe a month or so ago. And it's completely open source, so open source hardware and open source software. And the idea is that you, know, you could build your own if you wanted to. So it runs on um, the M5 Stack Fire um, and potentially other devices too. So you're not constrained to just buying it from Blockstream. You could order parts yourself, um, build it yourself. And this mitigates some of that supply chain risk. But I think a bigger driver for us to build this is just because we wanted more hardware wallet support for liquid and liquid assets. So the easiest way for us to do that was to build our own. And Lawrence Nahum, our chief architect, was tinkering around in his spare time. And I think this is a, a year or so ago and said, you know, I could probably make something uh, really quickly. It took a bit longer than we thought, but still, it was pretty quick relative to... Uh, uh, most hardware wallet development, I think, and we got it to market. And I think people are very excited to see this. One thing I really like is that it comes at a really cheap price point. So I think it's about 40 US dollars. So how'd you get it that cheap? And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we want it to be very accessible. So I think it's $39.99. That's the introductory price. Um, it might go up a bit in the future for our next batch. But, you know, we want to, we want a hardware wallet that is very accessible to the market. And we want to um, get more people using hardware wallets for multi-sig because uh, personally, I think it's better for security. And in that case, you want people to buy a couple of them, maybe three or more, and have their own custom multi-sig uh, setups down the road. So that's kind of why we wanted to price it uh, and make it accessible. But you know, this is not a primary business line for us at Blockstream. It's more about, you know, getting more adoption of harbor wallet usage and more liquid uh, usage too. So that's why it's priced pretty competitively. We just intentionally wanted to make it very accessible for people. Yeah, that's certainly a great uh, objective that I'm supportive of. I think that's a really cool thing to see because you get a lot of new people coming into the space and they might balk at the cost of the more some of the larger well-known hardware wallet prices now obviously there's a trade-off here in terms of security so let's be clear about that mm -hmm. but for some i could see this being a great first hardware wallet for people and then potentially they could even once you know things move down the line they might then start looking at multi-signature and have blockstream jade as part of their multi-sig quorum Exactly. Also, it's our first hardware wallet, so we didn't want to set a high price and set expectations really high. We thought it's better, you know, we go up close to cost and see how the market reacts because, uh, you know, it is our first one. It's not, uh, it doesn't have all the features we want rolled out quite yet. We're going to be basically building out as we go. Um, this week, uh, if you're releasing the pod this week, uh, we'll actually release support for desktop. Yep. And then uh, BLE on iOS is coming maybe in a couple weeks after that. And then hopefully we'll get the camera working. So it's not like it's perfectly ready to go. It's going to be an um, iterative, iterative process and we're going to roll features out gradually. So that's also another consideration for the price point. Yeah. And so at this price point as well, it, it doesn't... Um, you know, it's not going to have like a secure element and things like that. But I think as long as you're kind of open about that and it might still be superior for the newbie who's just bought, you know, their first, you know, maybe a couple hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin off the exchange, and maybe they want to start their journey of self-custody. And this, I think, probably a great spot for them to start, right? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, we do have a, a pin server. So in, in a way, there is something uh, that acts like a secure element. So if you enter the wrong pin a couple times, then you'll be locked out and you'll need to you know, restore from your seed. So there is that extra layer of security, even though there is no secure element. But, you know, it's cool to have secure elements, I think. Yeah, fantastic. And so in terms of using the device, as you mentioned, uh, desktop support is coming very soon. iPhone support is coming soon. So for now, does that mean it is Android only and basically a USB-C cable to plug directly to your Android phone and using Blockstream Green, the wallet? Is that how we use it right now? Correct. So the limitation right now is just Android. Um, and it, there is a little bit of clunkiness when you switch between Bitcoin and the Liquid Network. But all these things will iron them out and uh, improve over time. Excellent. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting mine. I'm obviously keen to give it a try and uh, you know try it out in practice. Um, and also, I think the other easy part is that it if, if we're getting desktop support quite soon, I know Green came out with desktop mm-hmm. um, support. So can you tell us a little bit about Green on the desktop? Yeah, so um, I think Green first started out uh, uh, mainly like a, a web app, and then it migrated into mobile apps primarily. And uh, we we've always had a, a desktop support for it um, for quite some time, but we're adding more resources behind the uh, desktop client. So that's pretty powerful. It allows you to create multiple wallets. Um, if you're familiar with the mobile version, it's just one wallet per network. But on desktop, you can have multiple wallets. And you can easily navigate between Bitcoin wallets and Liquid wallets and even testnet wallets as well. So I think it's pretty handy once we get support for Jade because you'll be able to secure all of those uh, with your hardware wallet now. Oh, that's cool. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about, um, I'm not sure how familiar you are kind of with the deep, uh, maybe we're going into the, de- the technicals of green, but uh, I know there was a change recently around, um, I think it was CSV instead of, so green has a two of two. Can you tell us a little bit about that setup and what that, you know, what that's mod- changing into? Yeah. So uh, previously, um, before CSV, uh, you had to get a backup file in case like the green service goes away um, to recover your Bitcoin. But with CSV, then you can basically set up another address where it, if it times out, it'll be retrievable through that address. So it's just a way to make uh, people less reliant on us as the service provider. And I think it's more elegant too, because then you don't have to give your email address um, to to get your backups or anything like that. You just create your uh, CSV setup and you're done. you're done. Right, I understand. And in fairness, it's one of those things where maybe for a new Bitcoin user, they're not as focused in, on the privacy and they're still learning. And mm-hmm. whereas, you know, maybe the more hardcore Bitcoin Twitter guys are more like, no, I want full privacy. I don't want to have to give my email. I want to be able to recover on my own, etc. But I think it's all part of that journey. And you kind of have to, yeah. you know, find ways that, you know, people can choose what they want. And so certainly it's a good thing you're giving um, that possibility uh, as an option now. So can you tell us a little bit about the new setup now with the CSV? Uh, So I guess, first of all, for anyone who doesn't know, what's CSV and how are you incorporating that? Uh, Well, CSV is check sequence verify, but I I don't know how good I can explain the technical. So maybe we can can skip that. We can skip past that. Yeah, sure. I can talk a bit more about um, the, the, the two of two, actually. Sure, let's do that. Okay, so green also is a, a two of two multisig. Uh, you can also do a two of three, uh, but 
typically when you first set up a wallet, it's defaulting to two of two, where Blockstream is one of the signers. Um, some people don't like that. So we're actually working on a single sig as well. So if you saw maybe a couple of months ago, we launched Blockstream uh, Aqua or just the Aqua wallet actually. And that is a single sig wallet. So we do have the capability to do single sig and that will be coming out in green, hopefully in the next couple of months. And then you're not reliant on Blockstream at all. You set up a single sig wallet and you know, you're done. But um, right now, typically it defaults to two of two and you know, you have to rely on us. And that's one of the reasons why CSV is useful because it, it reduces that reliance on Blockstream as the service provider. Gotcha. Um, and I'm, I haven't checked this recently, but in terms of the ability to use green with your own Bitcoin node, is that something planned or is that possible at the moment? Or is it currently, it's all coming, it's all going back to the Blockstream node? Currently it's all Blockstream node. Um, but if you... Uh, look at Aqua. Um, if you look at the code, it's actually uh, using Electrum backend. So potentially later on, you can switch it to <laughs> to use different backends. But we'll have to see. Yeah, of course, of course. And look, at the same time, I, I don't want to like I, I impose this incredibly high you know, requirement on everyone. Like because at the same time, you have to consider who's the user, who's the typical person who is going to be using this, and is it better for them to just have a nice, easy user interface to you know start on their journey? Of course. Um, and I'm also excited to see what's coming. I think you, you've mentioned, um, and I saw in some of the blog posts around uh, Blockstream Jade that you've got you're going to have uh, HWI and uh, partially signed Bitcoin transactions coming, um, and then. Uh, also have QR code support. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what you're hoping to achieve with the QR code support there? Yeah, so a lot of stuff, uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff in development. Uh, there's always more work than there is time to do it. Uh, I mean, we still need to finish Aqua Android, but you know, one thing at a time. Um, with the so, if you notice with Jade, there is actually a camera on it, and the idea is that we'll be able to support. Uh, QR code. So you could do uh, complete air gap signing just by using the camera and QR codes. Uh, we'll probably need to do something like an animated QR code just because there's a lot of data in uh, liquid transactions ex- uh, specifically and also because of the screen size too. Um, so maybe the resolution may not be high enough, but this is still stuff uh, Lawrence is working on. Uh, but the idea is that you would have this like animated QR code that would scroll through, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple screens of QR codes, and then that would be your transaction. So you could broadcast that without ever having to connect to your device. And you could potentially use it with, say, Blockstream Info, because you can broadcast a transaction over Blockstream Info, a raw transaction. So you could also do the same, like scan the QR code from your device and send it through uh, Blockstream Info. Oh, that's a very cool function as well. So the way I'm thinking about that is, if people are currently concerned about broadcasting a transaction from their own internet, and if it's broadcast off their own IP, mm-hmm. well, then usually IP addresses are a little easier to trace back down to who was the person who paid for that IP service. Mm-hmm. Whereas if in the Bitcoin world, the transaction can be you know, composed and signed, and um, then it's ready in the form of that uh, I I'm not sure the correct technical term, but I think it's a transaction hex or mm-hmm. that info that you could then, you're saying you could get blockstream.info to be the one to broadcast that transaction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I'm excited to sort of see some of these things come. And, and also that is um, aligned with the approach I've seen some of the other hardware wallets 
take. So for example, Spectre DIY and Kobo Vault, Mm -hmm. who are also doing QR codes. Um, And I know with, say, Spectre Desktop, um, they've got the animated QR code thing going. Um, I know uh, Chris, uh, Christopher Allen from Blockchain Commons has been, um, did some of the work around some of that QR code stuff. So that's really exciting to see. Um, And kind of this whole enabling this future of being able to do all these different things together. Um, and uh, also we've got a chat which we've got to chat a little bit about um, liquid obviously. So I guess we'll start with the blockstream Jade component of that because this is now another way that people can hold if they want to some LBTC or perhaps uh, some liquid USD tether, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, just a funny note, I'm actually holding a Spectre DIY in my hand. Nice. I just got a shipment from Moritz. So <laughs> timing to mention that was perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's really cool. I've had to play around with that. And I'm kind of excited to see what comes over over the course of this next, call it six to 12 months. I think there's going to be a lot of development in the multi-signature space. There's, there's talk about the multi, a new multi-signature standard to get all the different wallets to talk to each other in a nice, easy way or a coordinated fashion. So um, I'm just excited to see where that goes and um, see kind of the potential. And, you know, I could see Blockstream Jade being a part of people's multi-sig quorums, let's say in that example. Um, but yeah, I guess in the liquid case, this might help people who need to do, um, you know, exchange arbitrage, they need to send liquid and they, they need some way to self-custody their tether, their, their, um, their tether um, or their liquid bitcoins, correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, someone just posted today, James, uh, I can't pronounce his last name, James Vigiano. And he's talking about, you know, taking funds off of exchange and, you know, only moving it, moving extra funds onto exchange when there is a margin call or, you know, when you're getting close to liquidation or something like that. Yeah. So there, there, there is a good use case here because you know, he even identified it, which is uh, liquid Bitcoin is not at risk of um, a single custodian, right? If you put your funds on one exchange, they're on one exchange. Whereas LBDC, uh, you could you could convert back to Bitcoin through any number of uh, liquid members. So you, you minimize that risk of having just one group or one party in charge of your coins. So with uh, Jade, then you have hardware wallet support. So you could have green desktop uh, move uh, large amounts of uh, liquid USDT onto green secured with Jade, and you don't have to worry so much. You can technically do that already now with just a two-factor authentication, but I think having that hardware component will put people more at ease to transact and hold large amounts on you know, their computers. Correct, right, because I guess they might be concerned, oh, it's a big hot wallet risk, I want something that's like an offline device, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it can also, like you mentioned, have the whole liquidation um, use case. So in the case of um, let's say, for example, you're using HODL HODL Lend and, you know, you've got, um, uh, you know, you need to pay back, you say you, you put up some Bitcoins and now you need to pay back stable coins. Well, this could also be another way that helps you facilitate that process of holding your liquid USDT mm-hmm. and, you know, do the transactions there. So I can sort of see a use case there for people who, you know, need some kind of bridging between the fiat world and the Bitcoin world. Obviously, you and I, we would love to just be 100% in the Bitcoin world. But um, for now, I think we still need ways to try to minimize some of the trust in the fiat system, kind of. Um, but I guess, you know, that's maybe a debatable point, right? Because someone could say, oh, but what about Tether, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, that's, I guess that's um, something to think about. Um, and I guess... Yeah. 
I mean, have you got any comments on that? Or do you want to maybe we can chat a little bit about liquid as well, just in general? Well, I think there is a use case for stable coins. Um, you know, there's always people that say only Bitcoin, but the reality is there's a lot of fiat in the world still. <laughs> and, you know, we need to suck all that fiat into Bitcoin and it's going to be a gradual process over the, the next, I don't know, hundred years. And there will be trading. So there is a very practical use case for stable coins and a need for stable coins. You can't really trade Bitcoin for Bitcoin. So uh, services like you mentioned, HODL HODL, they, they're very useful when you want to um, buy, trade, or even I think you can borrow and lend now. And they've set um, liquid USDT as their default. So I think with the hardware wallet with Jade, it'll help accelerate that trend. And just today, I think we saw $55 million of uh, Bitcoin pegged into the Liquid network. So I think this is the trajectory we're going in, having this um, improved way to transact and trade with uh, privacy through confidential transactions, and even having stable coins uh, confidential as well through confidential assets. Yeah. So as you mentioned, um, I checked on uh our friend Clark Moody's dashboard, and I see that there are now over 2,800 BTC locked in to the Liquid network or pegged in to the Liquid network. So um, do you have any comments there just around how Liquid is growing and you know what it's looking like these days? Yeah, I mean, the the growth of Liquid is pretty much in line with the, the growth of Bitcoin. If you look at it historically, um, we're doing uh, probably under 1,000 or around 1,000 transactions a day, at least when I checked last. But that's uh, almost the same as Bitcoin when Bitcoin was about two years old. So I think a lot of people forget Bit- Liquid is only about two years old. So <laughs> it's still very young and it's not going to happen overnight, but it is a superior technology compared to a lot of other chains out there. If you want to transact Bitcoin and you want to transact uh, stable coins, it's just designed for financial transactions with improved privacy. And you don't have that with other networks that transact stable coins at this time. I'm also curious. So the idea is that Liquid is not, I mean, it is, I guess, created by Blockstream, but I think, I guess, longer term, the hope is that it becomes more like its own network and supported by a range of other um, providers and suppliers, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So, you know, when when Liquid launched, um, it's basically me picking people and selecting the members, like who would be the 15 functionaries that have the the hardware but now we have in place a governance board or several governance boards we have a oversight board which is in charge of you know general governance and management we have a membership board that vets new members to the network um, who will get a functionary box down the road so just if you don't know a functionary box is uh, basically a a 1u server that extends the liquid blockchain so they're distributed all around the world, you can think of them like miners uh, of the Liquid Network. But, um, you know, we also have a technology board that helps us drive our roadmap, what we develop and bug fixes and everything like that. So the the management of Liquid is pretty much out of our hands now. We're like the um, service provider that provides uh, tech support to this federation. I see, yeah. And it's one of those things where I see on Twitter, sometimes you see some of that discussion and you see, obviously, people have strong opinions in the Twitter world, uh, but you see some of these debates going back and forth about, no, Lightning for inter-exchange settlement and no, Liquid for inter-exchange settlement. Now, personally, I'm a fan of both for that case and I, I, 
I wonder what your views are on that. And is it sort of like maybe one way to think of it is like for small transfers, liquid is faster, but for high value transfers, liquid makes more sense in those cases. Uh, How are you thinking about that? Well, I I think you mean for small transfers, lightning is better. Sorry, yes. Right? For large ones, yes. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. That's the general case. Because for Lightning, you have to open up a a channel. You have to have uh, liquidity in the channels. It doesn't make sense to transact large amounts through Lightning, even though it can be done. Uh, I I just can't see it happening. There's just too much risk. um, There's too much hot wallet risk. Whereas with Liquid, the exchanges can effectively operate as they do with Bitcoin. They can have cold storage for LBTC, uh, warm and hot wallets, and you're not constrained by uh, worrying about liquidity. You know, you can send uh, a thousand bitcoins from uh, BTC Turk to Bitfinex using LBTC, and there's no worries about having enough capacity. So I think there's a place for both, and I think both are great. Lightning improves privacy. Liquid improves privacy. You know, I think Lightning makes sense for smaller transactions, and it's great that exchanges are stepping up and integrating. So, OK Coin, OKX has now supported it, and you know that's a good thing because it lets people, you know, transact small amounts onto exchange. But I think if you're moving large chunks of um, of Bitcoin, then Liquid is the better way to do it. And Liquid also has support for stable coins too. So, you right now you don't you can't transact. Um, Tether on Lightning. I think uh, Paulo is trying to get RGV going, but that's still a ways out. But currently, you can do LBDC and liquid USDT, and it's going to be more reliable, faster, and cheaper than a lot of other methods out there. Right. And so, uh, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. I suppose the the Lightning Maxi argument on this would be something like, oh, but see, Lightning is so much faster because Liquid has the one-minute block times. But I think there's one point I think we have to remember here, um, which is that, okay, so imagine you're a trader trying to arbitrage across exchange A to exchange B. And so at this moment that there is a mispricing, you would also have to make sure that the Lightning channels between those exchanges has enough capacity. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you could say, okay, fine, they would have a private lightning network between the exchanges and they would just have you know huge channels but even then you know there's a capital cost to that and i think it's also it might be the case that the channels would get what's the word like extinguished or in terms of the capacity would be exhausted Mm -hmm. at the precise moment that the trader needs it to go that way right what do you think yeah pretty much like you can exhaust the channel if it's all being pushed in one direction so you know, it's good because it's good for people moving small amounts. Then you don't have to do a main chain transaction. But there is an upper bound to the practicality of using Lightning. And, you know, sometimes people critique Blockstream and say, oh, you guys are anti-Lightning and you know, <laughs> you're, you're fighting Lightning. But they forget that we work on C-Lightning, which is one of the main Lightning implementations. So it's just kind of funny watching that happen. We think it, there is a place for everything, but use the best tool at your disposal for the purpose that you want to achieve. Of course, yeah. And uh, yeah, so certainly listeners who are, maybe if you're newer, just make sure yeah, make sure you're aware that Blockstream is also contributing to Sea Lightning and, mm-hmm. you know, Rusty and Christian Decker and Lisa, some of the, you know, they're contributing at the protocol level of the Lightning network as well. So it's not like Blockstream is only pushing Liquid, they are pushing both uh, Lightning and Liquid. Um, but uh, yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just so that's clear. But I mean, uh, just I think all my longtime listeners know that, but I think some of the newer ones are, that might not be so clear to them. Um, so, I mean, we have seen um, a bunch of exchanges recently 
either open up lightning support or commit publicly to say, yes, we're going to have lightning support. So I know yep. Kraken have done this. OKCoin, as you mentioned, have committed to this. Bitfinex have had it for a long time. Um, who else in terms of major exchanges? Oh, I can't think of any. Uh, the big ones, as you mentioned, are Kraken and OKCoin. And you know, I think a lot of people are also pressuring Kraken to support Liquid. Uh, I know internally we've talked to a lot of people there and a lot of people think, yeah, we should do that. But, you know, we're actively engaging to see when that could happen. But I think it'll benefit a lot of people. Um, the guys at BTC Turk, um, that's the, the biggest exchange in Turkey, they've said like a lot of their users are actually also Kraken users and they want to arb that market. And they they really want to Kraken to support Liquid. So we facilitated a call and we'll see where that's going. But hopefully, you know, they will support it and OKCoin will support it too. And it's all it's all to facilitate the cause of hyper-Bitcoinization. So it's all for a good cause. Of course, that's right. Uh, and I wonder as well, I mean, in your place in the industry, obviously you're very well connected and you've got a good insight into what's going on. Obviously, during 2017, during the crazy bull run, we saw a lot of demand on chain. Now, it could be, could be argued that there was you know, a spam attack ongoing, but I'm sure a lot of that was also just legitimate people trying to transact mm-hmm. on chain. So I'm wondering, what's your view this time around, let's say over the next, call it six months or even 12 months, do you see it like we're at a level now where enough people have lightning and liquid and that you know maybe that will have an impact on the... Um, fees or the block space market? I think there will be some impact, but uh, we need a couple more big exchanges to support Liquid. Uh, actually, not it's like a lot of them already support Liquid or are members of Liquid, like OKCoin is a member, but we just need them to integrate and expose it to their users, and that should help. Uh, because I think a lot of inter-exchange transfers, or even to derivative exchanges like Deribit or BitMEX, um, that is what drives up the fees because you know if you're moving large amounts of Bitcoin, you don't really care if you're paying a hundred dollar fee or a couple hundred dollar fee at that for that matter, because you just want it to move quickly, and that generally will drive up fees for the average user. So the the more the exchanges can support Liquid and to a lesser extent Lightning, then the better it is for everyone. That you're reducing the stress on the main chain for these transactions, uh, like. Right now, I think Bitcoin transactions are, well, I think a couple of days ago at least, were over 100 sats per V-byte, right? And that's pretty pricey. Yeah. <laughs> Even liquid transactions are getting up there. It's like uh, twenty, almost 20 cents per transaction now. So, you know, down the road, if we believe that uh, Bitcoin is going to keep going up in value, like as we're talking right now, it's like hovering around 50K and it's a bit distracting. But, you know, if we hit 100K this year, which I think we will, and then we go to a million dollars a coin down the road, I won't say when, then fees are going to go up just because uh, the transaction fee is a function of Bitcoin's value. So we need all of these technologies. Uh, you know, Liquid will reduce the cost and add efficiency, but Still, when it's a million dollars a coin, liquid transactions are going to be pricey as well. So you'll need you know, lightning on liquid to support that demand and use case. Back to the show in a moment. CoinKite.com are the creators of the cold card, one of the most recommended hardware wallets by Bitcoiners. I think it's the best in the market. There's a whole range of awesome features like the ability to use it air-gapped or the ability to bring your own entropy or the ability 
to use it as part of a multi-signature setup. So you can literally never plug this device into a computer and you can just plug it to the wall or to a phone power bank or use a cold power and then you shuttle the wallet over using micro SD card. This wallet is a really leading wallet in the space. They offer PSBT natively. It's got an address explorer, all sorts of features. Go and get yours at coinkite.com and use the code LAVERA for a discount. CypherSafe are producing the CypherWheel product. So if you have a Bitcoin hardware wallet and you're just using that piece of paper, well, it's time to upgrade. You've got that BIP39 12 or 24 word seed. It's time to get a metal seed product that is fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident. The cipher wheel comes in a wheel shape. You slide in the tiles. That's four tiles per word. And it's also got a padlock tamper evident seal. So you can know if it's been opened. So make sure you or your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs. Go to cyphersafe.io and use the code LAVERA for a discount. Lend at HODL HODL is a global Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can either earn interest on your stablecoins or you can collateralize your Bitcoin and get some liquidity without spending. This is all done in a peer-to-peer way using a unique multi-signature escrow for each deal. So if you've got stablecoins, you can go and create some offers and earn interest by lending. On the other hand, if you have Bitcoin and you need some liquidity, you can borrow stablecoins and then keep on hodling. So with this platform, you set your own terms, you put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Back to the show. Right, and it's funny that over the years, in the early years, people were paying massive fees in Bitcoin terms, but they were cheap in fiat terms. Mm -hmm. And so what's happened is over time, because of the optimization, because of SegWit, batching, lightning, etc., fees have come down a lot in Bitcoin terms. But we should anticipate that they, as you say, they're going to keep going up in fiat terms. Exactly. Like I I was actually quite surprised when we had that run-up in December that... You know, it wasn't that bad. We weren't that backlogged. So I think we've made progress, but we have to keep making progress and keep driving people to use um, off-chain solutions to you know keep the Bitcoin network viable. Do you think this time around it will be easier to get exchanges and other large you know users of the Bitcoin blockchain to optimize and use the new technologies? Or do you think it'll be sort of a similar story where it's kind of they get dragged kicking and stream, screaming into it? And in fairness to them, maybe that's not their priority, right? That Maybe that's not where their main revenue comes from. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. Um, a lot of exchanges are not incentivized to optimize for their end users. Like if you look at the landscape, a lot still have not supported SegWit and they're, they're lagging. I think a few of them only added support very recently, but... It, they they generally pass fees on to their end users. Um, I know that BTC Turk pays for their fees for their users, so that's why they're very much um, driving to get liquid adoption because they they're eating those costs themselves. So they want people to use liquid. Um, but uh, I don't think it'll be as bad as before because I think generally people are more aware now that they do need to embrace these solutions. Like if you look at uh, the adoption of lightning, then it's a step forward, right? Like there didn't, we didn't need a UAS or something <laughs> like that. They're just opting in to provide support and integrate the technology. So hopefully it's not going to be a battle. And I think as Bitcoin price goes up, they just need to do it or else fees are going to get increasingly prohibitive for their users. Like it's a perception issue too, that uh, if you have some noob and he bought some Bitcoin and he's got to pay 50 bucks to take it off, even though it's not 
it, it could be cheap in Bitcoin terms. It's still high in fiat terms. And this problem just is not going to go away because Bitcoin is just going to keep going up. Right. And it's also funny because, well, not funny, but it's just more like we will see sometimes people complain on Twitter saying, oh, I had to withdraw from the exchange and that you know was such a high fee. And they, they sometimes blame Bitcoin when really it's like the exchange who had... Mm-hmm. Like who didn't use a more optimized um, way of interacting with Bitcoin. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I'm also curious as well, do you see it kind of like there's going to be a few more dominoes to fall before Liquid becomes like really more, I guess, mainstream or lots of exchanges want to all support it and uh, get all those inter-exchange connections going? Yeah, I think uh, if we can get a couple more derivative exchanges to add support, and maybe OKX and Huobi, then I think we should be in a pretty good place. Awesome. Um, so let's also chat a little bit about mining. So I know uh, Blockstream Mining has been uh, advancing a little bit. Can you tell us uh, what's the latest with Blockstream Mining? Uh, well, we've been plugging away. We first um, started our mining operations shortly after I joined in 2017. Um, and we have about 300 megawatts between the US and Canada. Uh, we're still building a, a lot of that capacity. It just takes a lot of time. You have to buy a lot of transformers and equipment. Uh, we recently announced a big purchase of micro BT equipment, about $25 million worth. So, yeah, it's still growing and we're making steady progress. Yeah. Do you have any views on, you know, uh, what, what kinds of mining equipment you're looking at, what you like and why you like micro BT? Well, micro BT is just very reliable hardware. Um, we've done a lot of uh, testing of it. Uh, we've we get some of their models before they're released to the public, and we put them through the ringer. So uh, I find they're quite reliable. Um, they're generally, I mean, the the competition is uh, not as strong. I think eBay is a, a close second, maybe. Bitmain had a lot of issues uh, with their previous gen. Uh, we haven't touched their newest gen. But uh, their earlier gen had a lot of problems with uh, quality, like heat sinks would just fall off. And I don't know, maybe that was just due to their uh, infighting. And <laughs> no, one's, no one's looking at quality control as Jihan and Mickey are fighting. But um, you know, that, that, that hurt their perception, I think, in the marketplace a lot. And it, it's doubtful if they can regain their dominance now. I think um, MicroBT has managed to uh, leapfrog them. Right. And it's interesting from what I can hear, it seems like there's a little bit of a mining, uh, mining equipment squeeze on. So it's hard to, it can be hard to get the equipment because so many people are trying to run to get demand, right? Or trying to get equipment. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's always the case. Like when Bitcoin becomes hot, then people want in because they do the calculations and they see, oh, wow, if I bought the miner, I could, you know, I could make a, and tidy profit on on mining Bitcoin instead of buying Bitcoin. But then there's a lot you have to have in place. You need that infrastructure. You need to have your mining farm. You have to negotiate your power deals. Um, you need the equipment. <laughs> and it's not easy to get the equipment. Like right now everybody's constrained uh, from the foundries for from getting the chips themselves to make the miners. So you know it, it, it pays to it really pays to understand Bitcoin and to get in when it's not so hot. Like back in 2017, when I was sourcing power for our mining operation in Quebec, you know, I did that before the big gold rush. And you know, a lot of people were not that hot on Bitcoin at that time. But then 
with the run-up, then suddenly everyone was looking for power, and even the landlords were trying to squeeze you, trying to extract uh, extract rent from you, and trying to get every single nickel and dime they can out of you. So the best thing to do is just get into Bitcoin when it's boring and it's dead. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's, I guess it's it's also about getting your power arrangements going because obviously the power um, and the electricity price is a huge deal in terms of how mm-hmm. profitable you will be. Um, I've also seen this funny dynamic where people are using older mining equipment now because all of us, because <laughs> of the massive price run recently, all, really yeah. old equipment is now profitable again. Yeah, S9s are profitable again. So, you know, the, the mining equipment never uh, becomes obsolete. It just becomes obsolete for certain price points. So, you know, people want to buy old stuff because they can't get new stuff. So it's kind of a funny market in that sense. Uh, hang on to your old miners if you have them because you never know. One day they might be super profitable to run. <laughs> you got to huddle those miners, guys. <laughs> huddle everything. Huddle Bitcoin, huddle miners. <laughs> so... Yeah, so from what I've heard, the dynamic there is almost like if you have a higher cost of electricity, you might need a newer, more efficient miner. Whereas if you are um, using um, older miners, you might only be able to make that work with really, really cheap cost of electricity. And so that's sort of that dynamic there where it's almost like the newer equipment goes to the people who have the highest electricity price and then over time it sort of flows down like water down the mountain it sort of flows in the direction of the people who have um, as it ages then it ends up with the people who actually have the cheapest possible electricity price is that similar to what you have seen well i think in general even people with uh, low power costs they want to buy the latest gen stuff too right it's kind of like when you buy an iphone if you're going to buy an iPhone, you buy it when it comes out. So you maximize how long you can use it for yep. before Apple obsoletes it again. So it's the same with the miners. If you're going to buy something, you want to buy the new gen, right? Because it'll last longer. Um, but you know, even if you have cheap power, you still want the latest gen because you're maximizing your profit margins at that point. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. yeah, I think I was just referring more to like if you're going to have that conversation around when should you upgrade? Because you know, if you've already mm-hmm. got miners... Um, and it's kind of now you've got a few years old equipment, that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, there's a lot of people with free power. They, there are clever ways to get free power in the <laughs> world. And you know, those guys will buy old miners. You know, it's, it, it costs nothing to them and they get money or Bitcoin. So there's always demand. Yeah. And the other funny one I've heard is that because of how crazy it is and this market, it's like it literally matters how quickly you get the equipment. And so if you can get the equipment delivered really quickly then and plug it in really quickly, that's like huge amount of money saving because otherwise you're just leaving money on the table. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the challenge right now is that uh, deliveries are stretching out to end of the year now. And um, a lot of the manufacturers are just not taking orders. They just they don't want to... Um, Overpromise, and they don't want to be able to. They don't want to be unable to deliver. So, if you go to some of the manufacturers now and you say, "I want to buy some miners," they'll say, "Yeah, we can't sell you any right now." Damn, yeah, because I guess most of us are used to the world where you know, if you want to buy something, you just go to the shop or you order it online, and you know, in a few days, you it's delivered. But it's like really, the industry is hitting up against constraints that just you know, you just even if you were going to pay more for it, you wouldn't be able to get it unless you I don't know bought a secondhand machine of someone else. Yeah, 
The challenge, I think, is that um, we are too small as an industry in terms of like when you look at uh, uh, the foundry level of business. You know, they do business with Apple, with uh, you know Samsung, or Samsung does their own. But um, you know, they 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 want big orders and they want consistent orders. So there might be a peak or a spike in demand for ASICs to mine Bitcoin, but they just won't do that business because it's not stable, right? They want that uh, quarter after quarter reliable customer that's going to buy in volume and sustain their business. They don't want to cut off those customers and supply you because Bitcoin is hot this year. And the next year, okay, Bitcoin's dead again, and now you don't want to buy anything. So, <laughs> you know, I lost my big customer. So that that's the nature of the, the market. And I think it'll improve over time. But you know, we need more mining and we need more people making miners and uh, ASICs so that we have that sustained constant demand. So let's say Bitcoin you know, goes 5x or something like that from here. How would that sort of change um, the that dynamic there would it would at like say at fi- say at like another 5x from here would that then start having serious uh, you know that would presumably have very serious um implications in terms of how much demand there is for miners and then in turn getting access to chip fab right well i i think it's more about it's less about the price spike and it's more about sustained demand so uh, we need to let me think about this. We need to have uh, constant demand for equipment, and then we'll be able to like the the not we, but the ASIC manufacturers, the industry broadly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll be able to go to foundries and say, you know, we always want to buy, I don't know, five hundred million worth of chips every quarter, and then they'll start allocating more pipeline to you know ASIC makers, uh, ASIC uh, Bitcoin ASIC makers. So. That is the the key, having sustained constant demand versus spiky and dippy demand. Right, I see. And I mean, as an example, let's say we, you know, we spike to 5x and then we crash down to, I don't know, whatever, 100k or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, I, I wonder then, is there an argument there is also that, you know, over time, the, you know, fine, we have bull and bear cycles in Bitcoin and maybe it's like the winters are getting progressively less cold, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, maybe that will do it. Um, or the other thing that could happen is that the demand, the, the, the paradigm of demand changes, whereas it's not about mining for profit, but it's mining to secure your Bitcoin. So if you look at the big companies like MicroStrategy that are, are buying billions in Bitcoin, there there should be rationally some equilibrium where they say, okay, now we're going to mine Bitcoin too because it's a big risk to sit on this big pile of Bitcoin and not be securing the network. So every quarter, we're going to allocate uh, $25 million just to buy miners and to mine Bitcoin as well. Um, for, for those of us like you, you and me have gone through those the wars, you know, we know what it feels like to be threatened by, <laughs> by my, malicious miners, even if they don't have the power, but to, to feel that threat and to have them standing over you saying, you know, we're going to do this. And that's not a good feeling. And I think uh, there needs to be some education around that to a lot of the new players that have come into this space and educating them on the need to be a miner, because then you're actually participating in the network and securing it. 
Yeah, that's a really good point because it's like defending your investment. So one way you might defend your investment is, you know, putting up some funding for uh, Bitcoin development, whether that's Bitcoin Core or Lightning or something else. And then, as you're mentioning, another way is to put some money into mining or put some money into yeah these different uh, aspects of it. And I think MicroStrategy really have been one of the leading, I guess, examples of a company going hard on Bitcoin. And so perhaps there'll be others who follow them as well. So as MicroStrategy keep increasing their the size of their Bitcoin stack, it starts to make more and more sense for them to actually start playing in the mining game, maybe not directly on an ROI for the mining, but on a protection of the investment um, sense. Yeah, I mean, if you have Bitcoin, it doesn't make sense to, oh, it doesn't make that much sense to sell your Bitcoin to buy miners. But if you have cash flow, which a lot of these public market companies do, it makes sense to reinvest that cash flow in miners or mining facilities, secure the network, and effectively get Bitcoin for securing the network. It, it may, it, depending on the market conditions, difficulty and whatnot, it may not be as effective cost-wise versus buying Bitcoin. But at least then you know you've you've protected your investment to some extent. But that is what I think will smooth out that demand curve. When you have people mining just to secure the network versus mining for profit purely. So I wonder, though, how far away is that kind of understanding in terms of the common narrative, right? So maybe MicroStrategy are a leading company in terms of buying Bitcoin and other companies might start to follow them, you know, in the months to come. Um, But then it might take some time for them to come around to the mining idea and other companies kind of on a bit more of a delay from them, right? Yeah, but it's not as crazy as you'd think. Like one of our customers at Blockstream Mining is Fidelity. <laughs> so it is happening. Um, it's just uh, who's next. And I don't, I think Michael Saylor will do it. It's just uh, he's busy with a lot of other things. He's busy <laughs> stacking, but he'll come around to it. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on the whole future of North America mining? So there's been, a, you know, this whole, I mean, it seems to be a canard that comes up every now and again of, oh, China mining, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you know the story. But um, what are your thoughts on um, that idea of uh, the mining distributing out? I, I think it's important that, um, you know, much like liquid, uh, we try to keep the functionaries very dispersed. Uh, geographically and geopolitically, I think it makes sense for Bitcoin too. And that was one of the reasons why uh, Adam and I thought, you know, Blockstream should get into mining to help move some of that hash rate around, get it into North America versus having it mostly in China. And, you know, there are numbers out there where it's still like 70 some odd percent in China, but I think it's actually lower. We're probably down to about 60 or so in China versus the rest of the world at this point. Um, but that's that's uh, just my feeling. The issue is a lot of people, even if they're mining in North America, they might be still using a pool that's considered to be based in China. So then people uh, do the math and they say, okay, well, it's still very much all centralized to China, but I think it's better than most people think it is. Yeah. And in terms of underlying factors, or I don't know how to put it, but people might argue, oh, see, China has cheap electricity, and that's why it's just going to stay that way. Do you see any counter arguments there? Is there some other competitive advantage that North America can bring? It's actually not true. The the cost of electricity in China is probably on average higher if you if you factor in the seasonal cost changes. So there's a wet season in China, and that's when the cost really drops. But then when it's not wet season, then it's 
pretty high actually compared to North America. North America, if you're good, you can get you know around two to three cents per kilowatt hour, and that's better than China on average. So the the cost factor is not really the primary reason. I think a lot of it has to do with、uh, economies of scale and efficiency. So. The miners are manufactured in China.、Um, you can service them in China easily. There's a really robust logistics network in China to move them from point A to point B.、Um, you can set up in China very rapidly. If you want to build a mining facility in North America, it could take you six months or a year. But if you want to spin up something in China, you know it's weeks. So a lot of it has to do with speed of you know, everything in China. But I think we'll see that becoming less of an issue.、Uh, I know some of the manufacturers are planning to set up manufacturing plants in North America, so that, that's like their global expansion strategy. And that means you could have、um, you know, repairs in North America, assembly in North America, and maybe eventually down the road you could have foundries in North America too. So, is there anything that, let's say, U.S. or Canadian politicians or regulators can do to ease that process? Do you see any、um, ideas on that along that that line? Huh. I think、uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I have more faith in the free market than、uh, regulators <laughs> trying to help it along. <laughs> Yeah, so for you, it's more just a matter of seeing the competitive pressure and seeing now there are you know more、um, entities and mining operations coming up in the in North America. Yeah, I think it'll happen organically. It's just that you, if you're setting up in North, setting up in North America, you have to be prepared for higher capex initially. But in the long run, it'll pay off because power costs are generally lower, and there's a lot you can do in terms of automation. To lower your costs for you know, labor and opex,、um, you know there's a lot of cheap labor in China. But if you can optimize and have、uh, smarter systems in place, which is what we we're trying to do at Blockstream, then you can lower your costs a great deal. Yeah, that's really interesting. Hey,、um, so in terms of、um, I guess the North America. Um, mining、uh, scene is that like in terms of blockstream mining? Is it are you focusing on North America particularly, or are you looking elsewhere also? Well, right now our focus is mainly in North America, but we're open to other locations too.、Uh, you know, wherever there is、uh, cheap power and conditions that are favorable, we can definitely take a look at those. Yeah, and in terms of I guess North America, is it also that there's you know there's a lot of capital there, obviously. So is that also one factor where maybe a lot of the investors in North America might be keen to invest in an, in an operation that is、um, more local, let's say. Yeah, I think、uh, it, it's definitely a factor. People like to invest in things that are close to close at home and nearby.、Um, but I don't think it's a huge barrier. I mean, if there was、uh, a site in Australia, then I'd happily go there and you know <laughs> <laughs> grab lunch with you and set up a farm. <laughs> of course, yeah. And, and I mean, it seems that there's there's all sorts of different approaches going. So there are some people who are more just trying to you know get deals going with their local power plants, and then there are others who are saying, no, we'll try and find renewable. Or we'll be able to make it ourselves.、Um, how do you sort of see the split there going with you know、uh, renewables versus uh, you know uh, non-renewable energy? Well, generally, new- renewables are cheaper, so you're generally going to see more use of renewables.、Um, the question is really, really your preference, right? Like、uh, a lot of our power in Georgia is nuclear. So, do you think 
nuclear is renewable. <laughs> I think it's kind of renewable. It's not burning coal, right? So it's not polluting the environment. I think it's quite green, actually. So it, it really just depends. I mean, some people will try to um, find green energy to mine with, but I, I think as long as you're not actively using something that's very polluting, then it's okay. Yeah. And I wonder what your take is on that whole, uh, what percentage of you know Bitcoin mining energy usage is being renewable versus non-renewable? Do you have a, a, a thought on that or anything you can share? Uh, I would say it's probably like 60, 70% renewable just because hydropower is just so cheap. Um, I mean, some of the renewable power is pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty BS, like wind energy, it's green and renewable, but there's a huge dimension of uh, non-renewable stuff that is used to create those wind turbines yep. and maintain them, right? Even uh, solar power is green and renewable, but it's highly ineffective cost-wise to set up a solar farm to mine with, like at this point. Um, but, you know, generally i think renewables are cheaper like obviously there are people still burning coal um to mine right but i think it tends to be generally cleaner stuff that is cheaper so they will tend gravitate towards that right and i wonder to what extent that is government subsidy driven because it seems to me that there is a very large around the world there's all sorts of kind of government subsidies government subsidies for the so-called renewable energy even if they're not as um you know, scalable or overall sort of um, maybe effective as the non-renewable stuff. Yeah, I think it definitely would play into it. Um, I don't know of any specific instances of uh, subsidies helping Bitcoin mining. I know that in the past, Bitmain has tapped into some government subsidies and uh, used it for mining when they weren't supposed to, and then those <laughs> got shut down. But <laughs> I haven't heard anything like directed towards um, helping the industry or an industry. But you know, that's typically lack of foresight. Like if you look at Canada, we have massive amounts of extra, excess power that could be used for mining for many purposes. Like I don't know if you have it in Australia, but we have uh, crown corporations, which are basically government-owned corporations. Um, yep. And those can generate profit. So you could set up a crown corp to mine and I don't pay off the debt or something, but you know, that's not happening. We just waste the power. Yes, definitely. So Samson, that's probably a good point to finish up here. Where can listeners find you online? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Excelion, E-X-C-E-L-L-I-O-N. And you can find more info about Blockstream uh, just by following at Blockstream. We're on LinkedIn and Facebook too. And if you have questions, there's lots of information out there. We have help guides and blog posts about our tech all the time. So feel free to check it out. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 253. For this episode, make sure you subscribe in a podcatcher application so you know when new episodes come out and I will see you in the Citadels.